Missing this. This is the dream. Shahi on Fringlord. Whether you're from Cushendall in Antrim or Mount Sain in Watford, this is what it's all about. And get this. The all-new OTB Sports app. Off the Ball, Ireland's premier sports channel, now has a new home. Featuring the biggest names in Irish and world sports. Podcasts, interviews, news, commentary, analysis. Plus, almost 20 years of sporting archives. All free and ready when you are, at home or on the go. The new OTB Sports app. Download it now from the App Store and Google Play. All right, you're welcome along to the latest episode of Keith Wood's State of the Union. Keith is here as always, and I'm Nathan Murphy sitting in for Jer Gilroy this week. We have a brilliant panel today. It is always a privilege to have a World Cup winner on the show, and Maggie Alfonsi is just that. Successful in England back in 2014. Maggie's now a member of the RFU Council. Ali Donnelly is the founder of the hugely popular Scrum Queens and is also communications director at Sport England. And Wendy Keenan, who has many roles within Irish rugby, including being chair of the Munster Women's Committee and also sitting on the IRFU's Women's Committee. So, Keith, the future of the women's game, the focus of today's episodes. And I guess while we are now very much entering the harsh economic impact of COVID-19, the one overarching theme of the series so far is that while COVID-19 is going to have huge ramifications for the sport of rugby, most of the issues that you've been discussing and that we want to discuss, they were there even before the crisis started. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. There, there have been many issues. And uh, we have taken the opportunity over the last few weeks in lockdown to pause and reflect and look for the differing opinions and also information on the State of the Union on the game that we all love. We don't have all the answers. In fact, we've been looking for the right questions in relation to rugby. And the main governing question we have is if there is now a reset, what would we do differently if we had our time back again? So Maggie, I might ask you first actually, what was the state of the union in the women's game before this crisis? So I guess um, pre-COVID, I would like to say that the, the women's game I thought was was growing, um, but there were still concerns around the women's game gr- developing and growing globally. So, you know, in places like, I can only really talk for England, I guess. In England, um, it was qu- it was pretty strong, as you can see with the Tyrrells Prem 15, you know, having um, a set of strong teams competing out on a regular basis, the scores being relatively close, but developing a very strong national side, and the England team, you know, winning quite a lot of their, their international games. So from the English perspective, you'd say the game was pretty strong um, going into COVID. Coming out of COVID, I'd almost say um, I'm a little bit uncertain by what, what, what's coming ahead, um, especially when I look at the, I guess, top flight um, game with regards to the premiership. You know, we have no sponsor at the moment. They're, they're ending their sponsorship at the end of their three-year contract, so it's Tyrrells. Um, and you, you need big sponsors, I, th- I personally feel, to ensure that you're growing the game, but also um, pushing the reach of it in terms of its visibility. Um, so that's still waiting to be confirmed. And once we get a big sponsor, then I, I think I'll be a little bit comfortable in that um, sense. But at the same time, I think COVID has affected all women's sports. Um, and we, we've become a bit pretty much an afterthought. Um, and I think that's been my concern. Um, you know, when is the women's game going to start again? It's pretty much thrown into the, into the community game anyway. So when is it all going to start again? And when it does, we need to have certainty behind sponsors and, you know, that we're going to still have the same support that we had prior to um, the COVID. 
And, and even if we're here to look back in it as what it was like before COVID, was it sustainable on its own? Was, was women's rugby sustainable on its own? Um, I mean, it'd be great to get everyone else's perspective on this one. So I can only talk from my own perspective. Um, I don't think it's sustainable on its own, no. I think it really needs the help of, you know, collaborating with men's sides in particular. So one of the things that Tyrrell Premfordine did quite well was that you're starting to see um, the support from the men's, I guess, programme. So, for example, if I look at Saracens, you know, I know there's been a lot of controversy there, but there's been support from their side to help the women's programme. Um, we've recently heard about Exeter, you know, they're joining the um uh, Premier 15's uh, league next season. Same with um, sorry, same with Sale as well. So you know that's massive. So we it's 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 not a standalone thing. We definitely need support with the aim that one day we will we will be standalone. Um, but I have to say the collaboration is what's key for our sport to grow. Okay, and uh, Wendy in particular, what could you give me an idea of the the structure within Ireland? Okay, so our, our landscape is a little bit different, Keith, in relation to um, you know the effect of COVID has. But um, if we look at the structures within, I suppose each of the provinces has their women's committee, which feeds into your rugby committee, and you know usually the chairs would sit on the branch committees as well. Um, the chairs and the youth representative then would also sit on the IRFU women's subcommittee, and we would meet quite regularly um, and feedback there. And our action, our women in action plan, provides a platform, I suppose, for us to have a structure format for reporting back in terms of statistics um, in relation to that. And then Mary Quinn, who is the chair of the IRFU Women's Subcommittee, uh, is also copted onto the um, IRFU uh, committee. And she would also sit on the rugby committee there. Um, in terms of, I suppose, the effect that COVID will have on our club structure, we were already going through a restructure in relation to developing the game and our AIL had been expanded to 10 teams. So there was the introduction of two new teams to start in the coming season. Um, while, of course, it has had a huge financial effect on, on all teams, both boys, men's and the girls and the women. You know, I hope that there's a lot of positives and it's given time for clubs to reflect and to plan for the future. Um, we've been doing a lot of work, you know, co contacting teams um, looking at our development squads, staying in touch with players, you know, on an online platform. And one thing that we have done, I suppose, from a Munster perspective is formed a document, a club support document. So that it's almost like a health check for our clubs, um, you know, where we want to integrate the girls and the women's rugby fully into the clubs, where that mightn't happen in all clubs. So it has given us time, I suppose, to do that and look at our practices and look at what best practice and start to introduce those. Just in relation to, to both the UK and Ireland, would if you were starting again, would you start where we are now or would you do something different? I know there was a conversation in Ireland that maybe Ireland might go along a county system almost like a more GA system than a club system, rather than copying exactly what happened in the men's game previously. Uh, what yeah. are your thoughts on that? Um, I think there's a place for both. Um, I mean, it does happen in the GA. Um, I know that there are people who support that viewpoint and, and people who are against it. Um, from a Munster perspective, we're incorporating both for the coming season. We do have an issue with our adult playing numbers. I mean, that's where we have, we have a huge drop off rate. And while we're growing the numbers at underage levels, um, we are seeing a fall off and that's an area that we have to tackle. So to create sustainable clubs and a, a pathway, I suppose, for clubs to have players going from the youth section all the way through to adult level, we are now forming, if you like, a county team. Uh, the example I would give is Kerry. So we have four clubs who have strong 
underage structures but struggle at the adult game and for the coming season they're going to field like essentially a county team um, into the Munster League. Um, it'll be a first for us, it'll be a first in Ireland um, you know we'll support the clubs through there, we have the agreements in place in relation to the clubs, we're also doing it uh, on an East Munster basis as well and um, we're going to try it, we're going to see how it works and we believe that if we support that structure that we might be able to replicate that in other uh, in other places around the around the county, I mean Munster has its own problems. We're we're logistically a very big province, so travel does become an issue. So and you know there's a cost associated to travel. So um, it's hard to say whether we should go back and look at the county team. We have some very successful clubs. If you look at UL Bowls, one of the best teams in the country, they're sustainable. You know what I mean in an, in an entity on their own, so they wouldn't need that county structure. So there might be a place for both, which reflects what happens in the GA. And Ali, if, if I could ask you the same question, would you change things an awful lot if you were to start again? Yeah, I mean, I think the point you're getting to here is about innovation and can the women's game actually use this opportunity, i.e. this reset, uh, for want of a better phrase, to try and do things differently. And it's a question I think that is starting to be asked a bit more as the women's game grows and develops across the unions that are investing into their women's programs, you know, what is right for women's rugby, not what's right for rugby. And so, yeah, there are definitely things we could do differently. But I suppose the point I would make generally, just, you know, reflecting on what uh, Maggie and Wendy have said, you know, the women's game, the momentum in the women's game was only going in one direction pre-February. And, you know, it wasn't just COVID, by the way, the weather was also a, a really mm -hmm. difficult factor for women's rugby in February. So most of Six Nations, for example, got cancelled. Uh, Scotland, I think, played two matches partly because of the weather, then, then COVID and some of their players got it. So there were, there, you know, it was going in one direction. It got sort of chopped off at the knees because of a couple of different things. But that momentum there, I think, is something to be really optimistic about. But, you know, the question, what can women's rugby do differently as a result of this? Well, it should, we should be thinking about, and we're going to have to now. So, the, you know, World Cup qualifiers have been cancelled in September. So, you know, who knows when Ireland will get to play again. So World Rugby and all the organisations who are involved in the women's game do have now an opportunity to look at different structures and different formats. And I think most of them are doing it. Um, I mean, the other challenge that we have in the game, and this would have, this is a challenge regardless of COVID, is that for so long, women's rugby has been sort of, you know, chasing its tail in terms of the game. So, you know, I, I was sort of looking up some research about why we were so far behind in terms of commercial investment. And I was reminded that in Ireland, right, this is an Irish podcast, so I'll use an Irish example. The first men's test game in Ireland was in 1875. First women's test game was in 91. And if I could do my maths properly, there's a 116 year difference there, right? So the women's game has been catching up for decades in terms of investment, commercial opportunity, etc. And it is, it isn't, you know, you asked Keith, is it sustainable on its own? No, it's not. Of course it's not. Partly because of that, but also the game of rugby isn't sustainable. I mean, look at the premiership here. Most clubs are losing money hand over fist. So I think what we do have is a great product and a great opportunity to make it sustainable if it is sold correctly. And I guess we can get into the conversation about sponsorship and, and selling in later, but um, it's just a really interesting time to be involved in the women's game. Well, I think we can go into that almost straight away because it's a, a perfect little link. But uh, like I often um, compare rugby from 1990, 91, 92, when I started. So when I started with AIL and when I started the Ireland squad, when there was no payment for games, when there were no sponsors, when um, uh, there was no rights being paid by television companies for it. Um, and there's a huge similarity at that stage. So that's, that's only 30 years ago. 
And in that period of time, it's gone and ramped in that direction. Does that, is that growth potential there for the women's game? And if not, why not? Yeah, why, why not? Anything is possible um, right now, I think, particularly because, you know, not just women's rugby on its own, but there, there is a huge momentum around women's sport and participation in women's sport that that is there to be sort of capitalised on. And I agree, there are definitely some um, overlaps of what was happening as the men's game went professional to what's happening in the women's game now. And we do need to learn you know, some lessons from that, although times are different. So in the women's game, you've got, you've got real kind of, Maggie alluded to this earlier, some slightly worrying, you know, variables. You've got a fully professional England team, a semi-pro France team, and everybody else is amateur in the 15s game. So that, that is creating some really challenging anomalies that, and, and gaps that are going to be very hard to close, I think. Um, but you're right to make the link because we are at a similar stage, I think. But I remember back, um, even my first year in Quinns, we trained in the evening time. And we were professional. And uh, it was very interesting. The coaches said, we have you now. We can uh, train you three, four times a day, which you can't, of course. But, um, but also, there was a huge pressure that kind of went to the guys who wanted to continue to work and to the guys who wanted to play fully. A lot of the guys, they would have earned less money and had less potential going forward if actually they'd gone professional. So... Is there, is there a big urge, is there a big drive for the game to be across the board professional, either at an international level or at a club level? I don't know if Maggie wants to come in because she will obviously have um, more kind of links to, to players, but some players don't want to go professional. In France, they decided to go semi-pro because there's the cap on what you can earn in the women's game is pretty low. <laughs> the, the, you know, the England women's players who are contracted are earning max 30k. Yes, they can add some money on top of that, but if you're a doctor or if you're an accountant or whatever, you're losing 50, 60 grand. So I think it's back to the point, what's right for the women's game? Maybe, yeah, I guess any, any thoughts? Yeah, just coming back in on that, because I guess when I was playing, um, I remember at the time that from the outside, everyone wants the, the women's team to be professional, to be just like the men. Um, and as a player, you think, yeah, I really want to be professional. And at the same time, the, the opportunities in terms of finance are so significant. You know, to go professional for us, um, was going to be quite low in terms of how much money you're going to get where I could quite happily get a job you know, as head of development and make quite a large amount of money including bonus and that's that's quite a, a big decision for a player to make and now that you're seeing in, the, in, in England in particular the players have gone professional I think a lot of players are happy to be professional of course because it's, it's something that we've strived for for such a long time um, and from the outside the, the world is pushing it the world wants the, the women's team or women's sport to be professional um, if we were look at, looking at the detail, though, if you think about the options that some of those players have had to make in terms of, do I pursue a career, as Ali's already highlighted, as a doctor or as a lawyer, where I can make a large amount of money and also really establish my career, or do I take the risk and hope that I play for my club and hope that I can really do well for England and hope that that career is, is long? It's such a big risk. So I think players have to be professional, but there's a real press that, that we need to make sure that the women who are professional are getting, and they're not, not going to get exactly the same what the men get, but they need to be getting um, a lot higher in terms of how much money they get paid and the benefits that they get paid have to be good as well to ensure that the, the balance um, equals out. Um, Alan, and, uh, go on, sorry, Nathan. Sorry, I was just going to ask Ali from your role within Sport England, you're probably seeing a lot of the data around participation figures in women's rugby, particularly at an underage level. And I'm wondering that professional end point 
is that an important factor in participation numbers in keeping young girls involved in the game that having that goal of well I can go on and while there are other options I can make a career of this this is something I can enjoy and make money out of into my 30s does that factor into participation numbers at all or do you expect it to what factors more is visibility and so obviously if you are a professional you have more visibility and so visibility is really important uh, particularly for younger girls taking up sports and and you know that's one of the concerns of today actually i was tweeting about this yesterday we got the premier league back today and i looked at every single because i'm uh, i'm up early i have a three-year-old who likes to get up pre 6 a.m i was looking at the sports websites this morning and you you would be hard pressed to find a women's sports story there today because there is you know that we're not playing no one no one is playing anything so visibility is is more of of, of a you know pushed into in more of a factor in, in participation but on the growth point i would just say I make this point all the time uh, and I think it's really important. In the game of rugby, women, women and girls rugby in almost every nation, it's particularly the tier one nations that we know uh, traditionally called tier one nations, is the only growth area. Adult male rugby is in decline in many of the major nations around the world. So strategically, you know, it, that investment in sort of growing the game at grassroots level, whether it's visibility that um, helps to, to drive it or it's genuinely money and, and time and strategy, it's really important for NGBs at the moment. So that's quite interesting. And that, that gives me a lot of hope because you can't ignore the one growth area of your sport. No, and that was one of the points, Sally, as well, I was going to touch on. And uh, I think we had in one of the, our previous conversations was whether, whether you would want to have your own national governing body or whether you want to be part, well, you are part of rugby. You want to stay part of rugby. You want to be the key driver for the growth of rugby. Yeah, I mean, my view on that is that from, from a community and grassroots amateur side, yeah, of course, you need your, that's what NGBs are there for, right? They're there for everybody who plays rugby, whether you are someone with a disability, you are, you know, you know female, male, you know, young, old, whatever. I think what, where, where would get really interesting, we're not there yet, is when the competitions element becomes a real factor. So Maggie referenced the Premier 15s here. Uh, you know, it, the same model happens for other sports. So when it comes to the professional competitions and leagues, is, is the union the right place to drive the sponsorship and investment? Are they the, actually the experts or is it another body driven by commercial uh, you know, revenue? So in the same way that Premiership Rugby run the competitions here uh, for the men's game, but the RFU or the NGB, is that, is that an interesting model? And that happens in other countries. So you know, the WNBA run the professional basketball league for women uh, but there is a there is a body that run basketball for america you know what i mean so i think i don't think we want to go back to the days where there's a separate committee running the women's game so i don't know wendy if you were on it but i was certainly on the iwrfu committee uh it, you know when, when it when it was running the women's game and you're just so hamstrung by um infrastructure and resources so no i, I think all together to grow the grassroots and community game but there's definitely a debate to be had about what happens at competition you know when the competition is uh, really generating interest. Yeah. I think just to add to that, um, Ali, I mean, we worked hard for integration to come away from the IWRFU and to have full integration with the IRFU and, it, you know, to give us the positive standing in relation to, you know, the development of the game. Um, so I would see them incorporated. I can't see us separating out, um, you know, I mean, after developing those structures and securing funding, especially with our Women in Rugby Action Plan, um, you know, I mean, which guarantees us, um, you know, funding for the game, for the development of the game and the growth of the game. I suppose in Ireland, we're in a very different position to other countries and we can aspire to be professional, you know what I mean, like France uh, and England, but um, we're not there yet. You asked an important question there, do you, do you know, dream of being a professional rugby player? I'm sure if I spoke to a 14 year old who has, you know what I mean, is playing, you know, very good rugby, 
um, her dream, I'm sure, would be to, you know, play for her country and to get paid for it. Um, but, you know, success drives sponsorship too. You know, and that's a key factor when you are looking for um, sponsorship. And unfortunately, in Ireland, we're not there yet. So, it's a, you know, I mean, it's a different debate for us in relation to that. And in terms of that integration that, that has happened over the, over the last number of years, are you getting enough of a representation further up the track in the IRFU? Um, we do have representation, as I mentioned previously, we have our two uh, co-optees onto the IRFU committee. Um, we would hope in the future that would be more, there would be more. And I, I firmly believe that whenever there's a discussion around women's rugby and there's decisions to be made, that we need to be at the table. Um, and I'm not talking about gender representation. We need people at the table that have, know what's going on at the ground, know what's going on at a grassroots level, and I suppose who have walked the walk in relation to women's rugby. Um, I do believe that the RFU, uh, their governance structure is under review at the moment and I think there might be a proposal in relation to the delegates coming from the branch that one of those may be female in the future so that would you know, give us more representation and um, sometimes we look at the top down rather than looking from the bottom up so when we look at the people that are representative at the IRFU level they have come from the clubs you know they've been uh, nominated by their clubs onto provincial committees and from there they have you know made their way to the IRFU committee. So I suppose we need to work on our representation at club levels and have more women in the decision-making process and on committees at club level to bring those onto the, prov the provincial committees and therefore step up. The IRFU did introduce the leadership program, which has been very successful and we're due to start um, one specific for um, the women in rugby game um, in March. Unfortunately, COVID um, has put a halt to that, but you know, we look forward to that next season and that's about identifying people um, that will, you know, come to the game and, and sit on, on committees as appropriate. Can I jump on the back of what Wendy said there? I think that's the biggest challenge about trying to get representation at the top end, so councils and board, is because I think our pipeline structure isn't very good in the sense that, yes, we get people from our game at the very bottom, but the people who are coming in from the bottom in terms of our grassroots, uh, the barriers are quite limited. So, you know, you're not getting women in, you're not getting other diversity in, um, instead you're getting the same people on those committees at the lower end at club level and they're the ones who are making their way up to the top in terms of councils and boards and that's where we need to change it, we need to widen almost that, that pipeline and find other access routes in even if it needs to be a fast route, you know, a fast track route to get some women potentially into those roles. Uh, Maggie, is it an issue that um, uh, women administrators that come in at club level are only being considered for the women's game and they're not being considered for the for the the wider game is that the it's issue quite, it's been it's quite varied so um the landscape in england is i've seen some fantastic there's some female presence out there which is brilliant in terms of club level you know jill burns is brilliant what she does at waterloo um so there's people who are finding roles that aren't just representing the women's game but the general consensus there are going to be people who, women who have made it onto those roles, but they are only really there just looking after the girls and the women's section at the club. Um, and that's a bit of a challenge because again, they don't make their way through uh, the pathway when you think about when opportunities come up at CB levels, so constituent body levels, where there's opportunities to, to progress further, no one picks them because no one sees them. So we just need to do a bit more and try to, first, I think we need to appeal to more women 
people of diversity to say, look, these are there's some roles out there at your club that would really, you know, you could make a big difference. And then once they're on those committees, then push them to go into CB levels and then, you know, progress further. We just need to do more to sell it because at the moment, I don't think a lot of players or volunteers know of their opportunities and actually it doesn't really appeal to them at the moment. We also have to call it out. I mean, you know, Maggie, you and I talked this week about the RFU Council and I know there's loads of work going on around kind of diversity in the game here, but what is it? Six of 56 council members are women? I mean, that's just unacceptable. Um, and, and also, you know, World Rugby's uh, Council, uh, again, I refer to something I wrote. I, there were, I said something about there are more Brets than women on, on that council. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And so we have to keep calling this out and we have to keep putting pressure on, uh, you know, the status quo. And, and, you know, back to the kind of what I was saying at the top uh, about, you know, how many decades we're catching up on. Sports structures and NGB structures, including all of those around governance, were set up, you know, by men for men, because that's what was happening in the sports when they were established. So, you know, part of the work we do at Sporting that is looking, we've got a governance code here and we put targets a few years ago around women. So 30 percent of sports boards need to be, um, you know, to be female. And, you know, that's a very blunt instrument, but it does work. And you get, you know, you diversify um, the conversations happening around the table. And it doesn't necessarily need to be about women's rugby, as you said, Keith, it needs to be. You know, the, the, you know the, the kind of perspective that women bring to an issue is different um, in many cases. And, and the, there's pressure on Sport England now, rightly, because of the Black Lives Matter conversation of recent weeks to add a target to BME uh, inclusion on board. So, you know, absolutely, we've got to change the structures and help, you know, help people to find a way up the ladder that isn't there now. But we, we do need to use platforms like this. It's one of the reasons I wanted to come on here, just to, you got to keep banging the drum. And I'm sure people are sick of listening to me banging on about inequality in women's rugby but without it nothing changes even if you look at some of the trailblazers that have been in the game and joy neville in in uh, in referee the more the more visible she is and the fact that she's refing uh, men's matches and should be because she's a bloody good ref it's not mm. it's nothing to do with gender in that instance it's just the fact that she's very very good at her job the more evidence that that happens the more likelihood it's going to happen again yeah, and I think, you know, what happens there is that, uh, I hate the word normalising, but it, it starts to become common and people stop talking about it and it just becomes part of the fabric of the game. And I think there is a, there's a really interesting thing happening to, to how the public feel about women's involvement in, in sport and in rugby, which would be considered, you know, very male kind of in its origins. Uh, you know, there, there's a, people, are, people really love, uh, they have a real deep connection with their women's teams, particularly as Wendy talked about, you know, the successful ones. I don't know if people saw the story this week around in Australia where the national women's teams took out the top four spots in the survey that said that, you know, the public had the strongest emotional connection with those teams and, and women's sevens was third. So there's just something, there's a real kind of moment and, and sea change coming, I think, uh, for women in, in sport, whether it's, you know, on boards and, you know, playing, visibility and refereeing and so on. Um, and, you know, we're, we're coming for it. So it's, you know, things are about to change. Maggie, you're one of the half dozen. Sorry, Wendy, I was just going to yeah. say to Maggie that you're one of the half dozen on that council then with the RFU. How did you go through that process from ending being a player and so many players have strong thoughts on how the game should be run and probably fade away into the background? How did you manage to stay involved? Are there stepping stones there to help females who are coming out of the game to move into that level? Or was it just sheer personal will to get yourself to the top? So I guess when I came out of the game way back in uh, 
2015, which feels so long ago now, um, I'll be honest, there wasn't anything there really for players to find their way back into the game as a volunteer or any form of governance um, and so on. So I guess I came out of the game really, like most players do, just really wondering what am I going to do? I still love the game so much. I really want to help um, you know, the, the youth coming through. I really am passionate about diversity as well. Um, but look, my, my, my initial focus was actually I need to pay the bills. <laughs> um, so I guess I found a way into broadcasting and I absolutely love it. And I guess to add on to a point that Ali's really highlighted, it was all about, for me, visibility. So you know, I was very determined to do well in that area, especially being a woman. I uh, didn't necessarily think about a woman of colour, but I just wanted to be somebody on there who could, who could keep pushing, I guess, the women's game or you know, female players. Um, and then just by chance in 2015, um, obviously Jason Leonard was the president of the Rugby Football Union during the Men's Rugby World Cup. And uh, he contacted me and just said there was an opportunity on the council to be a national member. Um, you know, would you like to take that role on? So, you know, for me at the time, I hadn't thought about wanting to be on the council. It didn't really necessarily appeal to me. Um, I, just, I quite like the life of being on, in broadcasting, being on TV. But not until he sort of approached me about it and realised that actually the impact that I could have, um, I didn't really actually appreciate that I could actually do this. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be up for taking on this role. And then when I got onto the council and I got to meet the other, other councils and council members, sorry, I, I really realised it was such a welcoming environment. Um, but I also realised that I was finally in the room and I can have those, those challenging conversations um, and start banging the drum, really. As Ali's already highlighted, it was all about trying to push certain things forward um and i've been on the council now for about what, just over three years uh, i've still got a bit longer but obviously the terms will at some point the t my council um member term will, will come to an end so i really want to make sure that i can go as far up the ladder as possible and, and one of those goals is to hopefully one day be rfu um president really and um it, and i just think it just be we need lots of change um the council want to create change and i want to be part of that process it's a great point really important point um there, Maggie, is that idea of co-opting. So if you're trying to make significant change and you are, you have to put 20 years into the club and the province and everything to try and get there, change will come incredibly slowly. Whereas if you have people who are forthright and very capable, like we know each other for, for years, you're never shy about fighting your corner. You know you're, you know you're gonna be able to say, um, say your piece. Um, there has to be an opportunity for that to happen. And it can't just be for the sake of having a couple of people co-opted on. Um, but equally, well, it can't be just having 30 years of service that gets you there for the fact that you're the last one standing that gets you into some of these council positions. So the co-opting area is essential for rugby to continue its change in compliance and governance. I definitely think so. Um, and it's a bit of... It's a bit of it's an interesting topic because actually you don't want to upset the people who are at the current at the top. Um, but at the same time, you've got to create change. You've got to disrupt somehow. And, and actually co-opting is a really good way. And that we've seen with the world rugby um, council, how much of a change that's been since they've added a, a, a lot of women on, on that. And I, and I think it's made such a big difference. I do think, you know, we need to think about how our other councils and other governing bodies are also formed and what the structure is and, I know, see, Ali's Ali's already highlighted. Um, you know, Sporting and are going to look to potentially re revise the the code of sport governance because that might change things as well in terms of how a council and a board is is um, is formed. 
Wendy, from the Irish point of view and having the voice in the room, it's been interesting looking at the back pages and maybe it follows on from what Ali was saying that it's the Premier League that dominates and there's very few women's stories today. But when we talk about IRFU cuts and we, we were in contact with the IRFU and they say obviously budgets are still very much under review as to yeah. how the women's game will be affected. But all the conversation around cuts has been dominated by the professional men's players. Yeah. And they have a very strong voice in the room with Rugby Players Ireland. And that is going to be the focus for the next three, four months. The thought that they may have to take a 10 or 20% pay cut. Mm -hmm. And the longer term impacts on grassroots as to what may happen in the women's game. Do you feel in Irish rugby that voice is in the room when those decisions are going to be made? Um, I think it is, and I think it's up to us to make sure that our voices are in the room. I mean, we can't leave that you know, up to anybody else, that we have to keep knocking on the door and asking those questions. Um, as a result of the five-year strategic plan, um, you know, I mean, it has led to funding to secure that we reach those targets. And it has led to an increase of development officers in the province. Here in Munster, it doubled our staff that were developing the women's game. One would hope that that funding is ring-fenced because if we were to regress back to the position we were in 12 months ago, then there's going to be a regression in the numbers. And if we don't grow the numbers at grassroots level, then you're not going to see that, you know, um, develop onto, you know, provincial teams, national teams and lift the standards that are currently there and the performances are there. So um, I think it's up to us to keep asking the questions um, in relation to all of those aspects in terms of funding and to make sure that, you know, the funding isn't cut. There are going to be cuts. It's going to be cuts across the board in relation to, you know, all walks of life, everybody in employment, you know what I mean? It's, COVID is affecting the world, um, but we'll have to deal with it as best we can and uh, make sure that cuts aren't made to the women's game because it'll be a huge regression if they were. Can I ask if, if there was one thing each one of you would like to see changed, what would it be? God. <laughs> Ali, you go first then, go on. I don't know. I mean, I have a hundred. <laughs> um, I mean, I think because I write about the global game, I think I, I really want to see progression in the kind of global calendar for the women's game. So we've got um, a really disjointed setup and system. We've got a quite, um, you know, Six Nations, which isn't um, very well balanced, much, much less balanced than the men's Six Nations. Again, a tournament born out of an idea that this was a competition that was, you know, run by men for men. And it isn't really working anymore. The window doesn't work. Uh, you know, it, it, arguably the teams don't work. And so I would really like us to be, you know, and I know that World Rugby are doing this with, with national governing bodies and so on just looking at a very different calendar for women's rugby at test level that gives people opportunities to play teams who are uh, you know, at the same level of them more often, but also brings up the rest because there's just too much disparity now. Uh, I, I alluded to it earlier. I mean, England as a pro team, and they were already one of the best teams in the world. It's, it's just very difficult to keep up with a team that's being uh, paid to train professionally. And, it, it, you know, so I think that that for me would be huge. And I, I know that World Rugby were close to announcing something and then COVID hit. So I'm really interested to see where they've gotten to. And Wendy? Um, that's, it's a tough question. Like Ali, there's so many things that you want to change. I suppose if, I, if it was one, it would be representation. Representation on the different committees, both at a provincial level and at an IRFU level, and to have more of a voice at those. Um, I suppose that would be the one thing that I would like to change that I'd like to see in the future. Um, we mentioned about visibility there being very important, and it's, you know, it's key. We need our young girls and our young women to be able to see that there is a pathway for them um, whether it is coaching refereeing but also representation at a higher level at the higher tables and that would be the, ch the one change that I would like to see happen 
And I suppose COVID has given a chance for reflection and it has allowed time, you know, for that planning process and for us to ask questions. Um, you know, and the one positive that I see is that we can attend meetings from our, our homes, which is a big plus in relation to not having to travel, you know what I mean, which would be a big aspect, you know, when you're asking people to sit on committees at a higher level, you're usually asking them to travel to Dublin. You know, if you're working full time, then that's hard during the week. So um, I think that's a big plus that has come out of COVID, but that is the one change I suppose that I would like to see. I'd like to see more representation on the different committees. And Maggie? So I love both what Ali and Wendy have said. I mean, mine was very much around the, what Wendy's really highlighted about representation on in, in influential positions, you know, on councils, on boards. I think that's massive. Um, I guess to pull out from that, the biggest bit is visibility. You know, mm -hmm. it's hearing those stories, it's, it's sharing the, their concerns, it's addressing those challenges. So it's visibility of those who are on councils and boards um, or in roles of, of influence but also um, making sure we, we keep making those players visible as well um, across uh, globally. I think that's really important. And, and by that, I mean players who are um, obviously performing well, but also players who are doing broadcasting and so on. Just keep making them visible because I think that that's going to be quite key to inspire the next generation, but also to ensure that we, we stay um, in the in the limelight uh, and ensure that, uh, that conversations are, are being had and that want to involve us as well. Can I just add to that, I suppose, just to mention, because it is an important milestone, I suppose, in terms of um, rugby in Ireland, that like next year we'll have Anne Hennigan, who's going to be president of uh, the Connacht branch. The following year we'll have Debbie Carty, she'll be president of the Leinster branch. I mean, if we had been having those conversations, you know, five, six years ago, that we would have had female presidents of, of those, you know, those branches, um, you know, we'd be astonished. So there are two positive milestones that are happening, you know, in the next year and the following year, and hopefully the other provinces will follow suit. Oh yeah, there's been enormous progress. I mean, I started Scrum Queens in 2009 uh, and, you know, where the game, I mean, uh, firstly, I wouldn't have even imagined things like the Olympics happening uh, and having women's sevens players there. Pro players, not a, I didn't think that would happen in my lifetime. So, you know, change can happen quickly if there's momentum behind it, um, as Wendy's pointed out. And I, and I think the thing that is really interesting about right now is that there is there are huge opportunities. We talked about some of them. But you know, one, one area we kind of haven't touched on, which I'm quite excited about, is sponsorship. So Maggie mentioned that Tyrrells have, have obviously ended their three-year deal with, um, with the Premier 15, which is not ideal, right? And you could say, what a terrible time to go to market. But actually, I think it's the opposite. I think it's a brilliant time for women's sports to be going to the market because very often it's cheaper. Uh, you get more engagement from the players because you know we're not so bound up in women's rugby around you know the traditional models of sponsorship so keith i know you've been involved in that, that side of, of rugby before and i was ahead of comms at wasp for years where uh, you know i was quite surprised at the way the sponsorship model worked it was very sort of give us the money we'll put you on our shirt and on the screen at the match and off you go and here's a box and i think that that's changed in sport but women's sport where you know the players are you know working and doing other things, we've we've just got this great product, and what what I worry is that the unions aren't very good at selling it, uh, and let's see where we get to. But certainly, um, you know, there's a huge opportunity coming in the next year to get that investment that we haven't seen yet uh, into the women's game because the pace of change is massive. Uh, and I think the fear at the present moment in time, and I do agree. I think it's a it's a cracking market opportunity now for um, uh, for companies to to sponsor at a much lower level to rugby um, to get their foot in the door to then try and build something because if you can build something over a long period of time that's pretty amazing. 
Um, but it's whether the funding will be there for women's rugby in general. That's the, that's the big fear, I think, post, post-COVID as to what are the ones that are going to be knocked over um, to try and secure rugby for a future. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're an NGB, like Wendy talked about um, cuts, I mean, yes, there are cuts coming to, to, you know, governing bodies for sure. There are lots of redundancies on the way. Um, you know, we're heading into a deep recession in most of the countries that the game's played in. So what I, what I hope for, I mean, I would love to see ring fencing. I feel like it's not going to happen. I feel like most sports will say we will not disproportionately cut our women's spend. And that is probably the best we can hope for. And, and I suppose there has to be some understanding uh, when it comes to that. But um, yeah, I mean, the thing that is good is that there's pressure on, on NGBs now to, to actually protect their women's spend and to grow the women's game. That pressure didn't really exist a few years ago. You know, the kind of the momentum that we've talked about throughout this um, conversation, that hasn't gone away just because COVID happened. I mean, people remember how they feel when, you know, I'm obviously speaking from an England perspective, but when they watched the Lionesses, I think 11 million people watched that match last year when they played the semi-final in France. You know, that created something that hasn't gone away. So there is, there are, there is good pressure on the unions now not to be seen to be cutting, uh, you know, women's programs and women's spend. So let's hope that does, you know, that that stays and that we keep the pressure on through, you know, having conversations like this. The IRFU have their Women in Action plan, and they sent us on the numbers, and they're almost at two thousand adult players with a name of getting towards five thousand, and that's up, I think, fifty percent year on year at this stage. So they're certainly making signs of progress. I'm wondering, from that sponsorship point of view, Ali, and you're looking from from another side as to whether. We have capitalised on success previously, and I know there's always a danger of reading into just the elite team's result, but you look at that successful Grand Slam side, and there were so many inspirational figures there who are still around, and the likes of Fiona Coughlin and Jenny Murphy and Neve Briggs were very recognisable figures. And all right, results on the pitch haven't been able to continue, but looking from afar, do you think Irish rugby has capitalised on the success of that generation and of that team? No, <laughs> I don't think they have. And there are, ma- there are lots of factors here. That team was... Uh, there was a core to that team who had been together for years and years and years and, and a lot of that started to dissipate you know players started to retire have children etc so there were mitigating factors there uh, but the decline in, in in the kind of women's program between 2014 and 17 was shocking actually um despite the fact that people were really you know really interested in it and you you can't stand still you have to move forward you, you know when there is momentum you have to start capitalizing that and sometimes that means investment sometimes that means really smart strategy willingness to engage etc and i do think some of those things were missing um actually but i do but i think generally in the women's game it has it, it has it hasn't been brilliant at selling the women's game and at really kind of building the momentum behind it. That that is true, but there are some things you can say have gone really well. So I went to the England Wales game at the Stoop. And I, I live two minutes from the Stoop, so walked down there with my three-year-old. There were ten thousand people there who had paid to go to the match, and that is a huge moment for the women's game because the tickets tended to be free for these things. I mean, in New Zealand, it's, I think this is true, actually. I, I hope not just saying things that aren't true. I'm pretty sure this is accurate. No one has ever paid to go and watch the Black Ferns. They, they either have free tickets on the back of double headers or the tickets are given away. So they've got a really interesting marketing challenge generally ahead of the World Cup next year. But paid for, I'm going to part with my cash to go and watch this. Uh, that's that's been really significant um, moment in women's game this year that people kind of glossed over. So yes, it's true. Uh, Ireland and other countries have not been very good at telling the story of the women's game and, and selling it to either sponsors or the public. But you know, despite that, uh, the game seems to be growing anyway. So you know, sort of 
you take with one and you give away with the other. Another important aspect there, you mentioned some of the players that have now, you know, to be retired, I suppose, from Irish level, is keeping them in the game. Because if you like, they are the face of the game and they're the faces that are known. And we've used, you know, to mean those players and brought them through the coaching structures. So they are now coaching within the province. Hopefully they'll go on to be national coaches, but they're still the faces that are known, um, you know, in the media and do a lot of the reporting. So for our young girls who are now being coached by the Neave Briggs, the Fihays, you know, the Marie Kellys, the Laura Guests, you know, those players that have played representative rugby, is very important for visibility as we've mentioned earlier but also showing them that there's a pathway beyond rugby that if they do decide that they don't want to continue playing into the adult game that there are other avenues that they can stay involved in the game and give purpose to it. Yeah and I, I you know I probably get in trouble for saying this now but I just don't think the IRFU has been very good until recently at, at you know p- pushing the women's game in the direction it should have been pushed and there's still a very much a you, you know, be grateful that we're including you. Now that is changing for sure, but there's still a hangover and legacy of that. And 2000 adult players is great, but the numbers are pretty small. Uh, and the club game is still quite small, despite all the great work that's been doing. I mean, if I were the IRFU, I would be, I would be begging people like Lynn Cantwell to come and work for me because we have some really smart, clever women who understand structures around women's sport, what motivates women to play, who understand rugby and who want to be involved and aren't. So, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's progress being made uh, there, but there's still lots to do. Yeah. Ali, is there, a, is there a, a position for the Irish government in this? Um, is there an urge to try, an urge to try and drive uh, increased participation among young girls into playing sport? Is that um, essential I- for this as well? I mean, I guess Sport Ireland are the body through which that is done in Ireland. And I, I, although they're the counterpart organisation to the one I work for, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, all, all of the things they're doing. I mean, I know Lynn, for example, is the chair of the women's committee as part of um, uh, Sport Ireland. So, so they are doing that. So I guess that's where the government uh, come in. But, uh, you know, you, we just have to keep, we have to keep pressure on. We have to keep saying it's not, you know, you're an NG, if you're an NGB, you represent absolutely everyone. And it doesn't, you know, it's not just about the gate receipts that the men bring in. Your, your, your role is to grow every single aspect of the sport. It's interesting you mention uh, Fiona Hayes there, who often works with us on Off the Ball and would cover as many men's matches, if not more, than she would women's games and is a brilliant analyst and well-researched and very thoughtful and knows the game inside out. Uh, I'm just wondering, Maggie, from your point of view, when I talk about being a voice in the room, that you don't just want to be a voice, I guess, for the women's game either. While you have a huge interest and a passion and you want to elevate it, that we need to get to a level as well that you're just another voice that actually you can add to the overall grand plan of an RFU or an IRFU that we get voices in the room that are, are just part of the furniture. Definitely. Um, I, I, it's one of my biggest, biggest things whilst being on the council. I don't just want to talk about um, women, you know, rugby issues or BAME issues. I do want to be part of the fabric and talk about the men's game, you know, challenges they're having at the moment with salary cut, um, caps as well. So it's, a, it's an overall discussion. And I think it's important that when we are in the room, that we are trying to contribute to everything, not just the particular areas that we are going in for. At the same time, I still need to bang those drums because if I don't bang them, no one else is going to. So it's a bit of both really, but we do need to make sure that we're, we're looking at the whole game. Like I want to represent the whole game, not just particular areas. All right. Uh, I think we've got through a lot. There's obviously a lot more we could, uh, we could get through as well. Just, just to wrap up, if we're back in 12 months' time, five years' time, for you, Maggie, what success? What, where do you want the women's game to be? Uh, have you markers that you can judge it by? 
Um, I guess in 12 months time, hopefully it will be in a rugby world cup in New Zealand. Uh, so I guess for me, what I would be, what would be a mark of success is first seeing the, the women's world cup getting good sponsorship, but also good viewing figures. That'd be huge for me. Um, and the visibility of the game really being put out there. Um, what would also be success for me would be seeing in lots of those councils and boards across many different governing bodies that there's more women and greater diversity. I think that would be also a big step forward. And then um, I'm, I'm probably going to go down the point that Ali mentioned around sponsorship. I want to see sponsors really starting to back some of those um, women women's leagues, um, you know, really putting their name to women's sport. I think that would be really big for our game and will, would really help grow it. Wendy? Um, I suppose I would echo a, a lot of the opinions of Maggie. Um, you know, in 12 months' time, we'd love to see more representation, as I mentioned previously. Um, I'd love to see more competitive rugby, you know what I mean, at a national level, and that we're competing with the um, the other countries in relation to, you know, Six Nations, if we you know, are lucky enough that we would be able to go ahead with the full Six Nations um, and have a competitive Interpro series. I suppose for me, because I'm working at a provincial level, the growth of the game is you know, hugely important to me and that we have the correct structures in place at club level so that they're sustainable clubs so that they can keep going into the future and that it's not just a group of girls training in a corner of a pitch, that they're fully integrated and they're representative at minis, youth, 14, 16, 18s and, you know, go on to produce like an adult team. Um, you know, and hopefully from that they'll have representation at a Munster and Irish level and that would be success for us, you know, within the province. I'll leave you a list of 100 here as well. Well, no, they've taken, they've taken all the good ones there. Um, I think just to be different, I'll say that um, I'd really like to see the momentum from next year. So next year's a huge year for the women's game, the Olympics and the World Cup within basically three months of each other. Uh, you know, women's sevens at the last Olympics was, was really um, a quite significant moment. So I think building on that, you know, getting as many brands, sponsors, commercial investors interested in the game as possible, actually using that three month window as a springboard for, for greater things. And I'd also say, given I write about the sport, um, you know, much better media kind of representation of the women's game, much better understanding, uh, you know, more coverage, et cetera. So that Scrum Queens doesn't, wouldn't need to exist anymore because I only set it up because nobody else was bloody writing about it. And now, sorry to use that word, but now, um, you know, it still, it still has a need. Um, it's getting there, but I'd be very happy to turn it off. Uh, and hopefully we'll, you know, in five years time, uh, I won't need to be doing it anymore. All right, great stuff. Keith, have you any thoughts to sum up? No, uh, girls, thanks a million for coming on. Um, it's very thought-provoking and it's interesting because you always take a perception from your own self and you don't take it from somebody else. So um, we don't want this to be a one-time only offer. We want to get you on more often um, and get your voice heard more often. So thanks a million for coming on. Yeah, Thank it's been, you. been brilliant. Maggie Alfonsi, Ali Donnelly, Wendy Keenan. Thanks a lot for joining us in State of the Union. OTB's State of the Union with Keith Wood.